Hello everybody and welcome to this next episode of Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church with Nick and Mary Franks. Welcome to our Sunday teaching session in the book of 1 Corinthians entitled City of Temples. We're going to go through verses 1 to 6 today. I'm going to read the whole chapter now to contextualise the next few weeks' teachings and then we'll obviously refer to the whole chapter in various different stages throughout and indeed the rest of the entire book. This is 1 Corinthians 9 and obviously 1 through to 6, but I'll continue to the very end, to the end of verse 27. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as to the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the ploughman should plough in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 
I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I disciple my body. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So I'll take these first six verses this week and um, try and build on that as we go through. Um, Just a a reminder, two weeks back we were talking about the overriding principle of love building up. Last week switched to from the overriding principle to the the fundamental truth and that was that there's no God but one Um, and the, the supreme consideration that the brother for whom Christ has died. And so as we go into chapter 9 now and start looking at chapter 9, verse 1, it's important to remember the very last verse of the previous chapter, of course. Um, and I say that because um, verse 1, am I not free, am I not an apostle, have I not seen Jesus, so on. There's this, there's this uh, rapid machine gun-like uh, use of questions in this chapter, as you will have noticed, this, I think, at my... Last attempt to count, there were 16, 16 questions in 27 verses. That's, um, I think, indicative of Paul's, um, well, he's defending himself, isn't he? And so that's, I think, reflective of, of the way that he wields that as a as a rhetorical device in using these questions that does, doesn't necessarily require answers. Of course, in in, our, in asking the question, he's giving us the answer, isn't he? That's the way the rhetorical, uh, the rhetoric works. Um, but so we take these six verses and think. So just note that these questions are um, considerable through this chapter. I know Paul does that throughout his writings, of course, and in other parts of this book. But in this chapter, particularly, and six, a lot of questions. Um. And this week, the focus is Paul's freedom. That's really the whole point of this um, chapter. And within, if you remember, I said a couple of weeks ago, starting at the beginning of chapter 8, working through to the beginning of of chapter 11, where Paul talks about imitating, telling the Corinthians to imitate him. This is is quite a a chunky section, and we've covered the issue of food offered to uh, sacrifice to idols, and that will loop around... As I've mentioned, that will that will be returning to that within this little mini section, and then we'll come to chapter eleven and chapter twelve and thirteen. You know, and the back end of the book, in some ways, is more common to well known to some of us um, for obvious reasons with classic passages in mind. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not my workmanship in the? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Now, um. Thinking about that last verse, in what is the linking thought between eight thirteen and nine one? Okay, and Paul has finished off his section about this specifically to do with the issue of conscience and food by saying that he would never. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And then he goes into, "Am I not free?" And these four questions, these first four questions, these, which I think are effectively four statements. Um, 
let's just think about that. What is the what is a connection between um, between uh, I'm not going to eat this food if it ever causes my brother to stumble, and then these four questions. Well, think first of all, maybe it's easier to explain it like this. Am I not free? Think about th- think about these questions as statements. So this was this is how it would be if they weren't questions, and I think this is the whole point. In a way, they're not questions; they're statements. I am free. I am an apostle. I have seen Jesus our Lord. You are my workmanship in the Lord. That's what he's saying. And so having finished the previous chapter, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And then he immediately starts to talk about this. I think he, he what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is that in your clamoring and clawing to claim and exercise your rights, you are in fact demonstrating how bound and enslaved you are to your own selfish ways that's what i think he's saying throughout this chapter as i've just read and it will become clearer as we go through it in subsequent weeks but that paul is paul's freedom is in his um in in his ability to surrender his rights to lay down to forego his rights that he could rightfully claim and we'll see some of those specific rights this week in just a moment um, as a, and this is in stark contrast. This is spiritual leadership, isn't it? In you know, again, in, enduringly dealing with these issues with the Corinthians of immaturity and flashiness and uh, chaos, and we'll see that in a, in the context of worship coming up in, in in the next month or so, next six weeks, whatever. So he he's he's explaining, and he's on this different level from the Corinthians. And you would hope and expect that spiritual leaders would be on different a different level in order to to lead you know leadership um isn't a democracy is it at least i don't think it is there is a there is a need to to lead and uh, many many churches are being led by people that are, that can't lead um that that don't really want to lead they're not gifted or called to lead and that's part of the reason the church is in such chaos is because up and down the country you have people that are supposed to be pastors, evangelists, teachers, prophets, apostles, and so on, and actually, in some cases, they're probably none of the above. Um, You know, what I'm trying to say is, and I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm just trying to say that if our process for leading churches is, I'm going to fill in an application form to, say, Mattersea Hall or St. Melitus, and just join a a cohort for whatever and at the end of a two or three year period of study I'm going to come out and I'm going to be rubber stamped as a as um no that's that's not the way it works and it may work like that it may be that there are you know people who go through official education spiritual theological education like that and it's it is the Lord of course that's the case but my question would be to ask how often does that really happen um and to what extent do we value letters after a name or bits of paper? So, you know, I'm not against degrees. I've got a degree myself. I spent a couple of years back in my earlier 20s uh, spending some time doing some leadership training. I'm not against that. I'm just trying to express that this issue of leadership that Paul is demonstrating here, and we'll see just in the next verse about the seal of his apostleship, which, of course, is, in other words, the fruit of the fruit of any said church leader should be obvious and it should be the fruit that that rubber stamps 
their role and their responsibility, and it is responsibility more than a role, it should be that that rubber stamps that rather than a salary um, or charisma. You know, um, how many people are in roles leading churches, teaching, preaching, um, supposedly, you know, cringe when I think of people that call themselves apostles and prophets and that and that stuff. It's just bonkers. But how many people in those roles and those positions doing those things with those self-given statuses or whatever and actually um, their lives speak for themselves? In other words, that's what I'm trying to say. And Paul's life was speaking for itself here in, in his defense of this attack on his apostleship. And Paul's had to deal with that multiple times and I'm sure that would have been a recurring nemesis, gnawing dog, barking dog of a nemesis for him to have... Um, to have obviously been the real deal, legitimately an apostle and legitimately one who had seen Jesus um, and yet was treated with such such uh, disrespect and dishonor by him. And so he's, this is what he's doing here. He's obviously responding. Within the process of answering the questions from the Corinthians, who obviously, evidently those who did respect him and did uh, acknowledge and love his apostleship, but there would have been a, a lot and many other different groups... This is why we had this is why we had the you know the Peter party and the the Apollos party and so on. Um, so Paul's Paul's is basically saying that he's free, that he is an apostle, that he has seen Jesus, and that these guys he was writing to, responding to, were his workmanship in the Lord. Just keep in mind these questions. We're going to see many more questions over the next week or two, um, and indeed today. Um, so think of those four, four, four questions as statements. Um, it's obviously a, li- a literary device. Um, the overarching issue here is freedom in Christ, and Paul is, is demonstrating that, again, he's on this other level um, to forego the rights that the, the guys he were trying to lead and trying to help made it all about the rights, whereas Paul made it all about the gospel. And that last verse of the of this chapter is is very very humbling um just just to this isn't part of my plan for today but just look at the last verse there of of chapter nine but i discipline my body and keep it under my control lest after preaching to others i myself should be disqualified what a thought that is now that's not it's not Paul worrying about his salvation is it um although some some would argue that probably, but just just cast your mind back to chapter three, where Paul said in verse thirteen, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the capital D day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now the Bible is a gift and a grace and a mercy for us, and based on what I was just saying there about the, um, um, you know, people being in positions of leadership and whatever and it's because they're salaried and because they've signed a contract rather than because the spirit led spirit given fruit is the ongoing uh, security that you know that should be a that should be a gracious wake up call for many who may even at this point in history be particularly uh, tight fisted when it comes to clanging on to the things that provides them with security and comfort you know um that's going to be revealed by fire. What that's what Paul's saying there in chapter three, and the day again. The day should be upon us in our thinking. Um, the culmination, culmination of the ages is upon us. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't heed the word of God. And 
that's a thought, you know, it's such a thought, isn't it, to think about getting to the end of your life and, and realising that when the fire comes to reveal the worth of what you've done and what, you know, we need to be in that place of uh, full surrender. And that's what Paul demonstrates so powerfully in this chapter by foregoing these rights that he could easily um, make claim on. Read the book of Philemon as well. That's an interesting little uh, book where this issue of Paul um, writing very cleverly. Um, I won't go into that now, but just read Philemon. Maybe I'll come to that later or in subsequent weeks. Paul is free to forego his freedom for the sake of his brothers and sisters, whereas the Corinthians are evidently bound in their insistence upon their freedom. Notice that difference. Verse, verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So the church, as I was saying earlier, the church communities that Paul were, was establishing were evidence in and of themselves of his apostleship. Um, it's interesting here where Paul says, um, he's dealing with some that think he's an apostle and some, and some that obviously aren't. Again, we'll come to the, his defense of that specifically in a moment. But I found it an interesting thought thinking to last week or the week or two back when Paul dealt with idols, this issue of existence, and that the idols were so-called idols, they weren't actually gods, you know, so-called gods rather. And it's interesting because I think there is a vague, not vague, but a kind of indirect similar logic here in the way that Paul is saying if to others I'm not an apostle at least I am to you what he's I think he's saying is whether you think I'm an apostle or not is irrelevant um I am an apostle um and whether or not people believe I'm an apostle or not doesn't make any difference to whether I am an apostle in the same way that whether you believe that a piece of metal is a god or not it doesn't make any difference to whether it is in fact in reality a god so um, there's this thing of absolute truth hanging over this whole thing, and Paul's Paul's life has been ransacked by Jesus, hasn't it? You know, Paul has been literally floored by Jesus, and that's what gives him the uh, authority that is irrespective of what people may or may not think or may or may not say about him. Um, believing that Paul isn't an apostle isn't any different from believing that idols are living gods. It makes not a jot of difference to the reality. So we have to ask, why was Paul's apostleship in question? Well, I think in, for the same reason that Jesus was rejected himself, you know, as the Messiah, the one that would come and then didn't conform to all of the, the blueprints that we had, that people had for him in Israel to look like and sound like and the things that he should have done and the way he should have done them. He didn't conform to the human way of leading and Paul didn't conform to the to the to that expectation of the people of the masses you know the ignorant masses that didn't really understand spiritual revelation he didn't he didn't conform to the impressive or statured stereotype of what some Corinthians thought an apostle should look and sound like you know Paul came at the beginning of this book with in chapter two and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's not to the liking of the Corinthians. They wanted the apostles to be in strength. It's this whole topsy-turvy thing, which is a constant thing in this book, you know, this the way the inversion, the kingdom the way that the kingdom inverts weakness and strength, um, wisdom and folly, you know, keep all of that in mind. And Paul's Paul just doesn't conform to this um to this stereotype of being an apostle. You know, he came in weakness. 
and in fear and in much trembling. You know, Paul wasn't a Paul by today's standards. Paul wouldn't have been like the Saul of the Bible. You know, who was head and shoulders above the rest, and who was good looking and and what are you know as a physical specimen, he would have been. He wouldn't have been impressive. And, you know, you think of Jesus like that. It says of Jesus somewhere in Isaiah, I think, you know, there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. You know, the ways of the world, the ways of the kingdom are very different to the ways of the world. The eyes of the kingdom, the way that the Lord looks at things is very different. And indeed, that's what what the Lord said through Samuel to um, regarding David. Um, so so that was that. And um he didn't conform to the image, and and for us today, that you know, there's the same thing. Is that we? It's not like we're supposed to get to some kind of statured position of strength or whatever before we hit the streets or before we stand outside abortion clinics or before we decide to say something on social media that would maybe upset some people in the institution and the system. You know, we we don't necessarily wait for what we do is enter into a preparedness to do it in in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And Paul Paul's apostleship, gosh, I mean. The fruit was evident. Paul was setting up and establishing these churches, and yet, what what a disarming, beautifully disarming standard of leadership that is to be able to to be in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, knowing that you can rely on the spirit of power, demonstration of the spirit's power, um, and yet. So there were some that for him that he didn't he didn't conform and he was de- he was rejected and you know slandered as result. Well. But yet for others he was and to the, obviously to the Corinthians he was corresponding with and writing with and answering questions and so on. There was respect there for his, for his authority and and so on as well. Verse three. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Okay, so um, Paul's defending this examination that. Um, I can relate to uh, in some ways this is this ongoing gosh is this email that's going to come through is it going to be you can tell within about 10 seconds well two seconds whether an email is a good one or not one that's sent with a genuine sense to bless you know broadly speaking there are emails to have a go at you and take you down and discourage you others that um you know genuinely got questions or whatever and genuinely want to clarity to become on and other things other emails that are just out and out to bless and it's it's it is wearing wearing and wearing at times to 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 not know what's coming but that's fine paul paul was evidently modeling a profound humility and meekness here to have even given the the time of day to to these guys in some way do you think uh well at least that's how i think it's just amazing to to and it's important to note, you know, Paul's patience and grace and long-suffering nature here to have even given time to reflect on the the examination of his apostleship. Prior says the mere fact that he was prepared to spend time and thought giving a defense to those who would examine him on his basic credentials as an apostle of Jesus Christ stresses the essential meekness of the man. The essential meekness of Paul here as he does that. Um, because, again, the, the sharp point of this um, unpleasantness is that they're examining him on his on the basic credentials as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's hard for you and I listening, reading as well, to think of that. You know, how, you know, you just think about Paul. There's, I'm trying to think where it is. can't remember. It's maybe in the book of Acts where people were being healed, you know, by Paul's shadow, that kind of thing. 
the handkerchiefs or what have you. So it's hard to imagine that there would be those who would be examining these basic credentials. You'd have thought it's obvious. Giving thought time to slanderers is evidently worthwhile to some extent. You know, we're not to be bound by the fear of man. We're not supposed to be caught up and tied in knots and trying to respond to every email or whatever that's negative. You know, I just sometimes will ignore emails. Um, um, I'm trying to get better at that. I find it hard to ignore things. But Paul is is modelling here the 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 worth the benefit that there can be in listening to attacks and criticisms and reflecting um so he he's doing that in, in great meekness and and so on but it's important for us to remember that the, the sacrifice Paul has made in abandoning Judaism what what think about what these guys were that the whole examination and within the examination the accusation that he was he was not legit legitimate he wasn't he was a uh, he wasn't impressive enough. His CV wasn't good enough. He hadn't been to enough theological training. He hadn't uh, had. He didn't have enough experience. All those kind of things. But just think about the rational way that these Corinthians were thinking. You know what? What was it that Paul had gained from being the golden boy of Phar- of the Pharisees to being the black sheep overnight, literally overnight? What had he gained from that? What had he gained from abandoning? Duke? Well, we know what Paul regards to have been his great gain, and the thing—the only thing now that he would boast in, and that he would rather die than be robbed of having the opportunity to boast in—it's it's the gospel. It's Jesus Himself. That's Paul. That's what. But to, but looking into it on, on human level, what's Paul gained? How much had he lost? We've I've talked before about the potential that he lost his wife. The like the very likely uh, likelihood that he had been married and that there'd been this sense of him having lost literally the nearest and dearest you know that emphasis that Paul put in in chapter seven of just you know, God's called us to peace let if if the unbelieving half of the marriage wants to go let them go uh, what strife had followed I mean all the physical um, suffering that Paul endured and again um um Pollock's book on Paul is is called the apostle um it's worth getting to give an insight into this suffering you know even the way that Paul would have w- walked because of the suffering the physical the you know the, the torture and the imprisonments and lack of food and come to that in a moment Paul's willingness to to suffer but the get the, the point I'm getting at. What do, what are these people who are examining Paul like this? What do they think he's gaining? Um, and and the profound um, the the profound testimony that that the lifestyle of a man is is in the face of these types of examinations. It's like the difference between a Muslim convert to Jesus compared with a Christian convert to Islam and. If you think about a Muslim converting to Christianity, okay, especially in a different country, and you think of of the outcast that they become, um, even to the point of being rejected and in some extreme cases even attacked and even killed by their family for the disgrace, the so-called disgrace and dishonor of becoming a, a Christian, you know, an infidel. Well, if you think about that the other way around, a Christian converting to Islam, what comparable suffering is there? And there's a reason for that. This stuff that's 
part of that experience for a Muslim converting to Christianity is demonic. It's, it's spiritually charged. It's like the crowds wanting Barabbas to be released to them rather than the, the beautiful Messiah Jesus himself. There is a, there's this sleepy, transcendent, demonic scheme going on. And I think that's partly what was going on here with Paul is that the obviousness of Paul's apostleship, the genuineness of his encounter with Jesus that he'd seen with his eyes. That's what he said in the first verse. Of course, we know that. But the obviousness of his apostleship and his love and his heart for people and his willingness to lay down his rights should have been obvious without Paul writing this letter, surely. So there's this irrational, demonically charged element to this examination of Paul's apostleship, which I think in in our today's age we should think about on a personal level, on a leadership level, but also on a corporate level in terms of um, the way that the church, I think, is being roused and shaken and, and kicked awake in some ways um, by the naysayers, by those who just want to, um, those who want to just stay on the perpetual treadmill of trying to navigate things rather than addressing them. That's what um, I was chatting to my dad yesterday, and um, we had uh, we both. Yeah, I won't go into it now, but basically just sometimes you have these experiences where you have a, a profoundly provoked spirit and you're not sure why you can't put your finger on something. There hasn't been any negative experiences. There hasn't been a bad conversation or falling out or anything. You just feel provoked in your spirit. And I think, listen, it, the prophetic people of God, you know, we're eagerly supposed to be desiring this gift of, the pro- of prophecy. And I think when prophecy starts to work, you know, an evidence of being prophetic, I think, is that you don't just navigate things. And people, most people want to navigate things rather than addressing them. If you're, if you're um, serious about wanting to live wholeheartedly for God, for, for the Lord Jesus in this world at this time, in this short fleeting, do you remember those words back in chapter seven with the with the sense of the sale being short the time is very short the appointed time has grown very short in view of the present distress it is good for a person to remain as he is etc 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 um if you want to be serious about that you got you you're gonna have this longing to address things rather than just navigate them and you can tell when you speak to people and listen to people's stories. But, you know, this, this whole thing about my church, my, the church that I go to is just a nightmare. It's a disgrace. I don't really respect the leader, but I'm still going to go. I'm still going to continue to pull up with it. The Church of England, yeah, I mean, it's got its bad spots. But, you know, we've got priests telling people that they can, you know, become, you can be homosexual and it's fine. God doesn't really mind. He just loves and welcomes everybody as they are. And, that you know, there are bad things in this life and we just have to navigate them and, um, yeah, I know, I know Justin Welby's not ideal, but you know he's you know at least he does some good work with mental health, and at least he joins forces with Prince William occasionally, and you know there's, there's some good stuff. It's nonsense. I'm pausing just because of the words that I would want to use that probably aren't appropriate, but it is nonsense. And life is too short to want to merely navigate that kind of stuff. When Paul says that we should eagerly desire the higher gifts, especially the gift of prophecy, that prophecy, the divine pathos that Abraham Heschel talks so so eloquently about, so helpfully about, to understand what that means, 
means that the divine pathos, the suffer, the sharing in something of the suffering heart of God for what God sees and sees regarding his people will propel us into addressing rather than merely navigating the maze. And we're going to be producing this film. Praise the Lord for um, the provision to have done that. And thank you to anyone that's given towards uh, this film. We're going to be doing this film to address these issues. Um, Life is too short. God is too worthy to merely navigate. We are called to address. We are called to... um, wield the sword and um so on anyway none of that was in my notes um so i think i think paul was dealing in this examination of his of his credentials there's profound spiritual blindness in corinth compared to profound spiritual blindness in the vast majority of the church today which is why it makes people who have prophetic unction so unpopular um So in, in his defense, so again, let me just read verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. But Paul's defense is very, very different to the Corinthians' um, thinking and their own defense, perhaps their own logic, rational, rationalizing of things. Paul was not emphasizing his rights, but rather his freedom in Jesus to forego, to surrender his rights. And then we come now to these next couple of verses, which I've put into a little uh, bracket in effect, just you know, grouping that there's... Um, these three rights that Paul comes to and specifically wants to address. So I'm going to try and do that relatively quickly. Verses 4 to 6, I'll read read these verses again. And again, just thinking about these 16 verses, unbelievable, isn't it? The number of verses in this chapter, uh, sorry, questions in this chapter. Thinking about these 16 questions. Here we come to another uh, list, a little uh, section of questions. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So more questions. Statements. Again, think of the way that I think we should read these as statements. In effect, Paul is saying, I do have the right to and drink. I do have the right to take along a believing wife if I was married or if I did want to have, you know, or if the other chaps wanted to take their wives, why why would that not be a problem? Why would that be a problem for Barnabas? Or indeed, why would why would it be a problem if Barnabas and I don't have um, a normal quote unquote normal working rhythm? You know, refrain the right to to work to to not work for the sake of the gospel and for that to be the main vehicle. Why you know Paul's making statements. He's asking questions, but in so doing, he's making statements. Um. Um. So, so right one, this the eat the right to eat and drink. That's verse four. Right two, the right to take a wife along with them as apostles, um, and then the final right, the third one is to refrain from working for a living. So quickly, just take those three. Paul's full time vocation. So thinking about um, the, Paul's tent making. Um, it wouldn't have been a desk job. You know, working as a tent maker in the, thinking of the climate of the places that Paul um, ministered in and travelled to, and particularly Ephesus, you know, you know, a very hot, sweaty, humid type of culture and the physical job that Paul had making tents as a leather maker. You know, this wasn't setting up a tent in your back garden in Scotland where you need 
two two or three different layers to keep warm this would have been a, a physically demanding job and so Paul Paul's vocation as an apostle is is worth thinking about because he was juggling so much this you know I can relate to to this as I'm sure many of you listening can and uh, what have you is that if you have a tent making type arrangement as I do I do work for people um, the, the work I do is not physically demanding it's easy you know in one sense I'm just editing film or um, writing or whatever Paul by comparison um, his his experience of work you know thinking of Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla and living with them or in Rome at the back end of his life you know in these places it would have been hot and difficult and Paul's putting the point here that we do have the right, Paul did have the right to receive material support from the churches. Um, just some passages here for your notes. Matthew 10, 9 to 10. I'll read some of them for you. Um, Jesus' words. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for journey, or two tunics, sandals and staff. And then for the labour laborer deserves his food luke ten seven, and remain in the same house eating and drinking and what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages whenever you enter a town and they receive you eat what is set before you and then in thessalonians 1 2 6 to 7 nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others though we could have made demands as apostles of christ but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So there's that whole thing of we could have, we could have, we had, we could have made the claim on our rights, but we didn't. Um, um, and again, one Timothy. Again, this is the passage. You know, Paul's just talked there about the muzzle, um, the oxen not being muzzled as it's uh, treading out the grain. Repeats something similar in 1 Timothy five seventeen to 18. So let me just give you those verses again for your own reflection and study. Matthew 10, 9 to 10, Luke 10, verse 7, 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 to 7, 2, Thess- 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 9, and 1 Timothy five seventeen to 18. The point is Paul did have the right to eat and drink um, and that, that that was okay because his vocation was the go- preaching the gospel, planting churches and so on. Um, so of course he did have the right, but how often did Paul go without basic things like food and drink? Um, there are other other times where Paul didn't have food. He was he went hungry, or he wasn't sheltered, or whatever. Um, it's such a contrast to this horrendous disgrace of the prosperity gospel, isn't it? You know, pastors driving around in their like four by fours and. Um, oh gosh, I don't want to spend time elaborating on that, but you, you get the, you take the point. How can we, especially when we're told to imitate Paul? You know, how are we imitating Paul? It's a good question, isn't it? How are we imitating Paul? How are you, church leader, imitating Paul? Right too, it was to take a wife along with him. I don't want to comment too much because I've done that extensively about Paul's what I think Paul was had experienced and will have still been processing through his own transformation post Acts nine, his own conversion, his own time in Arabia, and what that meant, the cost of his life regarding what his I think his wife. Um, so I'm sorry if that's confusing you because you need to go back and listen to that if you've not listened to our, our sessions through chapter 7 but obviously Peter was married and other brothers would have been too 
um, this this right to take along a wife with them. Well, again, that was something. In other words, that if you take if you take your wife along with you, do we do I have to pay for my wife's food and lodging, or is that reasonable to be expected that that's paid? covered by the community or the church that we go to it's like itinerant people today isn't it um is it wise for an itinerant preacher or speaker or whatever to go along somewhere on their own probably not is it right is it wise for them to stay in a hotel uh on their own no it's not and so to you know take your you take your wife with you i think is i think to be honest I can't think of anybody that i would rather take there's nobody that i would rather take along with me than marry so you know this whole thing of um, this was a right that was important, and Paul recognised that even if he wasn't thinking of himself. Paul Pryor says on this, it's an interesting point that I thought was worth mentioning. Um, he says, it's from such personal rather than theological distinctives that divisions in the church so frequently arise. What Paul is saying here, this issue of you know the previous cliques that we've seen in Corinth, whether Peter, Apollos, or Paul, or, you know, how much of those things would because of was Paul was Paul left was Paul in effect um, as a single I think as a guy on his own he didn't have that camaraderie with a wife to take along with him uh, that's part of Paul's sufferings was that though was that something that was made it more difficult for him to be recognised as an apostle you know the whole status thing isn't it um, I've covered that as well the whole thing of singleness being somehow a lesser gift it's nonsense i think it's the contrary is is the case i think the opposite is the case um and yet in our fickleness often uh singleness is regarded as as, as being lesser and i think maybe paul would have experienced something of that if he didn't have a wife to take around with him um it says there in that verse that the brothers of the lord so with their wives, took their wives along. So, um, again, for your notes, brothers of the Lord, talking about James there, who was the leader in the early Jerusalem church, and Judas, um, as in the writer of the book of Jude. So, specifically here, you know, thinking of Mary and Joseph's other children, that seems to be the most likely explanation for, for G, you know, essentially Jesus' sibling, he, earthly siblings, would have had wives. But even... Even his brothers didn't believe in him. So John 7, 5, not even those of his earthly family who lived with him in the same house for 30 years knew who he was. Um, I'm talking about two slightly different things here. But the, this right to take along wise with them um, and the context of the verse, of course, is that, that aspect of Jesus um, living in, in the family unit that he was part of for 30 years before his public ministry um and just just as a side note on that and of course at the end of this book in chapter 15 verse 7 to so 1 corinthians 15 7 talks about jesus appearing to james and then to all the apostles so james so so jesus appeared to his brother uh james um I think it's worth just flagging here for Paul, thinking about Paul and trying, as I said before, trying to get into Paul's head. Would there this lack, potential lack of respect of his ministry because of his social standing is very important. But we know that there would have been other support of other women, um, like it said for Jesus in Luke eight. Let me just read this. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also. Some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, 
from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So there you go. You know, there, there's this, uh, again, in history and in that culture, the context would have was obviously for there to have been this helping ministry of women for lead, spiritual leaders. And maybe Paul was a beneficiary of, of something like that. Maybe there would have been others, you know, to have supported him in that way. Finally, right three, refrain from working for a living. Paul um, Paul says here in verse six, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Um, funny that he should mention Barnabas here with this with this disagreement that we know that's a very significant disagreement that Paul had with Barnabas over the issue of John Mark and the reliability of John Mark for leadership and Paul having felt let down by him and that kind of thing. There's much that could be said about that. Um, but this, again, as I've just touched on earlier, just the work that Paul would have been involved in uh, spiritually in his leadership, the amount of time, even writing this letter, you know, thinking and crafting and responding and prayerfully, all of that prayerfully, would, it was a full-time job, you know, like, we don't like to think too much that somehow thinking and praying is not, is not a, that it's not a, a valid vocation. Well, of course it is. We know that, we know that the apostles shouldn't have neglected the word and prayer for the sake of cleaning tables, for example. Um, so again, it's important to think about the extent to which Paul's life was fraught with responsibility and it's difficult for me to even imagine what that would be like um, myself. Speaking, it's like, this is easy, what I'm doing, compared to what Paul was doing. You know, for uh, some of you might think, oh, it's quite it's quite good that you've got this amount. I mean, it is a full, what I do in some ways relates to a full-time job because it takes so much time to do these types of things and proper, you know, doing it properly, preparing and but Paul's exists. Paul's like Paul was doing this work, the kind of work he was doing. I'll give you an example of this. Okay, so if you think about again what I said about the, the culture and the climate that he would have been in in that part of the Middle East or wherever he was in Greece or there were different times here, there, and everywhere. But um, in Acts nineteen, where Paul um, it says in Acts nineteen something to the effect of um, he, I think it says he he discussed or argued or reasoned daily in the how in the um the hall of tyrannus and it would have been in if you know like if you've ever been to somewhere like africa you know the siesta hours where people just sleep it's too hot or whatever it would have been a bit like that there would have been a, a, a block of the day where nobody would have been doing much it would have been too hot and sticky it would have just been impossible to have done much work and paul still in those hours went and engaged in this reasoning you imagine somewhere cooler inside and yet preaching the gospel, teaching, um, and everything that went with that, and the amount of energy that went with that, how exhausting would that be then to return back to another physically demanding job? It would, think, think of Paul as like a brickie, as a labourer, you know, um, not as a desk job, not as a pushing paper around and ed doing film editing or whatever. This is this is not Paul's... So Paul, again, in all of this is to say that Paul would have legitimately been able to have claimed the right from working for a living and to have received the support. And he's not. He's, he's not. he's not questioning. He's, he's, re, he's reinforcing the validity of, the, of these rights. 
these rights that he pulls attention to in these opening chapters of chapter nine, the, the right to eat and drink, the right to take a wife along with with them, and then a right to refrain from working for a living. But he writes, 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 all of these rights, and yet he doesn't, he forgoes, he forgoes them in order to, um, for there to be no stumbling block in the way of um, others coming to faith, coming to saving faith. It's impossible for me today to be able to sufficiently express how thoroughly um, possessed Paul was in that sense of his singularity of focus. And again, I think that's why I find it's quite hard to understand why there would have been these people other than a demonically charged reason why people would have been questioning him because so obvious was he that he was he was just so singularly focused on seeing people saved. And again, we'll come to that in subsequent weeks. You know, when Paul comes to the um, the section becoming due to to the Jews, I've become like one to the Jew, or one like to one under the law, like one who's under the law or outside of the law, and basically becoming all things to all people. Such was his desire to see people saved. Verse nineteen, as I've mentioned, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. This winning more of them was Paul's prophetic, apostolic, evangelistic, call it what you want singularity of focus um was i think there to be seen um by all and clearly so and this thing in verse 16 for if i preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting for necessity is laid upon me woe to me if i do not preach the gospel woe to me you know can we ask the spirit of god today for that sense of um, Paul didn't muster this up of his own strength. This wasn't Paul's uh, midlife crisis, career change. This was only by the Spirit of God. And I think something of the same indignation with merely navigating the things that we're in as a as a corporate body rather than addressing them is something that we can ask the Spirit of God to help us with. Indeed, as with any sense of... Um, apathy or laziness that we would know something of the fire of God how how we need the fire of the spirit of God today in our personal lives and in our corporate life together let's just pray Lord we feel humbled by your word this morning I feel humbled to think of Paul's life, and not only his life, but the type of lives that he were was trying to help form and develop in the disciples. This command to imitate him, and yet seeing the squabbling and the misunderstanding and the being aware of the spiritual uh, dishonor, the demonic. Um, Lord, I, I ask you to please do this by your spirit in me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Do it in the lives of everybody listening. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to do in us what we can't do in ourselves. Do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Give us a new appetite and desire to pray. I pray for spirit of prayer and anointing 
for prayer and for not only prayer but for preaching and sharing and being willing to be despised and rejected and regarded as foolish as Paul was and so Lord I I pray that as um, we continue reading this book and thinking about all that we've read and heard and thought about before that there would be this forming sense of you changing us by your spirit I pray for everyone listening in great company or in great loneliness I pray for those who are well physically those who are struggling with illness those who are at peace those who are struggling with anxiety those who are clear on what you've said to them and what you're asking those who are unsure Lord and I pray that in all of these things that we would know your spirit drawing us into a greater sense of clarity as Paul himself had in many different ways notwithstanding the the suffering that there will always be and so Lord I, I pray that there would be this prophetic desire the desire to address rather than to navigate and that you would give um, give us the sense of walking the streets of Corinth with Paul and imitating him and indeed imitating you Jesus we pray in Jesus precious name Amen Thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Into the Prey we trust that it's been a blessing for you as you've listened to it wherever you are in the world if you'd like to get involved in supporting this what we're doing here through these thrice weekly that's three podcasts every week that's 12 a month it's quite a big undertaking if you'd like to get involved in supporting that in terms of the technical hosting of the costs associated with that but also the the desire the ongoing desire to improve the production quality all of that takes a lot of time and we want to do our very best with what's in our hands. So if you'd like to get involved with either one-off or regular giving, you can do that very easily, safely and securely through firebrandnotes.com forward slash give. And you can find a little bit more about Marianne and myself there as well. So please, please do that. If you want any more information, please get in touch. We'd be more than happy to get back to you. And until next week, guys, let's keep praying earnestly. Come Lord Jesus. <laughs>